You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 246, Charles Causey and Chasing Candor. Charles and I go way back. This is a great conversation. But first, a message from our sponsors. The event of the year for Christian business owners is just around the corner. Handprint Legacy Live 2021 is virtual this year, which makes it super easy to attend from anywhere in the world without makeup, long flights, or expensive hotel rooms. Thursday through Saturday, June 24 to 26, we'll spend three powerful days mapping out your first or next most important steps for your business. I'm Katie Horner. My husband and I have grown from full-time ministry in Mexico to full-time international business owners by understanding and solving the countless marketing challenges faced by Christian entrepreneurs. We created the Handprint Legacy Live event as a safe haven where small business owners, teachers, authors, and coaches strategize, implement, and grow their business. This event is highly interactive and tickets are limited. Grab yours today before we sell out because three days of Bible-based fun and marketing instruction is going to leave you with your next marketing funnel all mapped out. Register now for the 2021 event at handprintlegacylive.com. Friends, if you're interested in Katie's conference, Handprint Legacy Live 2021, use just go to ericnevins.com slash handprint uh, for your access to that event. That is a special affiliate link that I, that she gave me to use. If you do, then that she sends a little bit back toward in my direction. So again, ericnevins.com slash handprint, ericnevins.com slash handprint. Thanks a lot. Let's get this show started. Hey friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I am appreciative that you downloaded this episode. It's going to be a special one. I can tell you that. I'm already excited. Just just getting doing a little pre-game here before we hit record. You're going to enjoy this story. Uh, if, as always, uh, this show is uh, is something that if you if you appreciate it, do me a favor, tell a friend, tell somebody, just say, Hey, I listened to this podcast, whether you just found us and you enjoy it, or if, uh, if you are a faithful listener, you listen every single week, please just share the show with somebody that, you know, would appreciate it. We'd, we would, would mean a lot to me, uh, as we, as we go here. So, uh, thank you for that. All right, here on to our conversation. I'm so excited about this because our guest today and I go way back and it's been a long time. I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's been maybe not quite 20 years since I've talked to him before, but it's been a long time. Uh, we go way back, back to our seminary days and I uh, can't wait to to hear all about what he's been up to. Our guest is Chaplain Colonel Charles Causey. Charles, welcome to Halfway There. Eric Nevins, thank you so much. <laughs> awesome to be here. And uh, thanks for that introduction. And yeah, it's been about 20 years, brother. We were in seminary so. in the early 2000s. Yeah, it was. I, I didn't finish until 2009. That's a whole long story. I'll have to tell you some other time. But it's, uh, it, <laughs> it, but it was, yeah, absolutely. It was kind of, those were the early days. And um, I remember, I remember, you know, we worked together, we were at, we were at school together and it was, it was a big deal. So, 
Um, very cool. But you've been doing a ton of cool stuff. You showed me your backyard a minute ago, which is like all, like just the most idyllic scene in the world. Uh, so I'm pretty jealous of that. Tell us a little bit about where God has you and what you're up to right now. Oh, yeah, no problem. So um, I'm an active duty Army chaplain, and I've been assigned to Honolulu, Hawaii, and I'm serving a command called the Ninth Mission Support Command. We have soldiers all over the Pacific. We have at Alaska, America, Samoa, Guam, Saipan, South Korea, and, Jap- and uh, Japan. And uh, so, and we also have a mission called Task Force Oceana, which incorporates about 14 island nations, such as Fiji and Vanuatu and Papua New Guinea, East Timor. So, anyway, uh, a lot of mis- mission opportunities, a lot of ministry opportunities. We have about uh, so I s- supervise approximately, I don't know, 20 chaplains and 20 chaplain assistants. And we're trying to cover a lot of ground and minister to army soldiers mm-hmm. under a, it's kind of an umbrella command called uh, U.S. Army Pacific. There's a lot of other chaplains, a lot of other uh, folks working in, in this region of the world. We just have a small piece of the pie. And I mostly work with Army Reserve soldiers, Um so anyway, yeah, Lori and I are here. We're empty nesters. And we decided if we're going to be in Hawaii, we didn't want to live on base between the Burger King and the bowling alley. You know, we <laughs> wanted to live in rural Hawaii. So that's why we got a place right on the ocean in eastern rural part. Right. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. It looks pretty cool. So I'll have to come out and visit you. Um, but, you know, you know how it is. I mean, well, you're, you're, the ocean's right there for you. But like I live in Colorado and you know how often I get up to the mountains like twice a year, right? Cause it's just, <laughs> it's just how it is, but I love that. So, well, cool. I can't wait to hear. It sounds like you've got a really interesting ministry. I want to hear more about your story and uh, we're, we're going to talk about two, your most recent book, which is published by Moody uh, Candor, the secret to succeeding at tough conversations. You've become quite, quite a writer. How many books have you written? I've written seven total. Okay. Um, yeah. That's yeah, pretty cool, since- man. Yeah, it started in uh, 2010. So that's been in about 11 years. And most of my books take about two and a half years to write okay. from start to finish. Well, I remember seeing that, I think, on Facebook early, uh, one of your books. And uh, I was like, well, that's cool. That's seven books. That's really impressive. So um, we'll talk about the book as as we go. And it's you know it's about tough conversations. That's something we obviously all can can help. And I'm sure as we talk about your story, maybe that comes up we'll see. But, uh, so tell me about like, I don't, I don't remember where, where'd you grow up and where, where are you from? Oh yeah. So, um, Leavenworth, Kansas is where I call home, but my father was actually an active duty army chaplain. Okay. So while I was in the home, he was assigned to Fort Hamilton, New York and the Presidio in California. But I was from fourth grade on, I was actually in Leavenworth, Kansas. And uh, so that was, I was actually born at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas before my dad retired. But yeah, so went to high, junior high and high school there. And then I ended up going to college at University of Colorado in Boulder. And uh, it's like you said, I went there to ski. And a lot of my friends who had, you know, lived there their whole life, they're like, oh, we only go skiing once once a year or something like right. that. I was like, my plan is every weekend. <laughs> right. On President's Day. That's when they go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So school in Colorado. And then um, I did some ministry jobs. I worked with crew for three years at Lincoln, Nebraska. 
And then I was associate pastor for an evangelical free church in a very rural Iowa town called oh, yeah. Britt, B-R-I-T-T. I know, where, I know where Britt is. I'm from Iowa. Yeah, that's great. Oh, you're kidding me. It's yeah. so funny how many people know Britt because it's it's really just a whistle stop. I mean, there's a flashing light on the <laughs> Highway 18, you know. Um, well, but anyway. I When I was yeah. 19, I did, I was a UPS loader. So, you know, I would like... Hmm load up the trucks that were going to go out to the stations and around the state and then del- for delivery. And, uh, that's probably the only reason I know Brit, even though I was, I was from there. Cause I was, you know, sorting books over or boxes over there all the time. Um, okay. But, so your dad was a chaplain too. So I'm guessing it was a Christian home. Yes. Yep. My, my parents were devout Christians. I was in church three times a week at a minimum. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's if there wasn't a revival going on or something, you know? Yeah. And then you were there more. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, what was that? What was that like for you? What was your experience of kind of faith life as a kid? Well, honestly, it was, it was a little bit legalistic, but it was great structure. As I look back and I look at, you know, how much I learned in Sunday school classes and I learned it in church. Um, the problem was I just kind of grew, uh, I grew a little too, I don't, I don't know what the right words are. Um, but it's almost like I had a, a vaccine against Christianity a little bit when I went to college because I was like, Oh, been there, done that. This is old school. It's kind of ingrained in my family. I hadn't personalized it. I didn't own it. Mm. Um, and I kind of grew against wanting to listen to worship music at, at that time. We didn't have all the great worship bands we have now, you know, it's like Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, but, um, I just, I really didn't care about those things. And I, I met at the University of Colorado, I met some really incredible students who loved the Lord and they were cool. You know, they just, they could ski like nobody else. They could, they were popular. They, they were just, they had, they had seemed to have life figured out and, but they had this joy, this zest. And I got, my roommate and I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ is what they called it at the time. And um, there was about 400 students. There was like a revival going on in Boulder at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, when was that? That was uh, 86 to 90. Okay. And we just had a, an amazing staff team. John Lamb and his wife led the staff there. And, it, you know, we had so many in small groups and we'd have 300, 350 at a weekly meeting. I think there was like 400, 450 in small groups. Um, but it was Boulder, Colorado, which a lot of people think, you know, hey, that's kind of the epicenter for you yeah. know, Wicca and all the different, you know, crystals and new age stuff. Um but we kind of took the campus by storm. We took the town by storm. We did sur- thousands of surveys. We brought in uh, Coach Mack. You know, we brought him in when McCartney, when he was winning against the University of Nebraska and things, and we actually won the national. We brought him in right at his peak of popularity oh, in nice. 1990 uh, to speak in the Glenn Miller Ballroom. I think we packed it out, had like 900 or 1,000 students in there, and he shared the gospel. The head football coach shared the gospel. And, wow. Just some really great times. Yeah. And that's what led me to go into. And as a result of that, I made a personal decision for Christ. Um, well, tell me that story. Like, I want to hear like what, what happened and how, how'd that go down? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the first year, I, we were my roommate and I were kind of checking out different groups. We'd go to NAVS. We'd go to Crusade. We, um, but we were mostly involved with Crusade. We had a Bible study, but we weren't that committed. Um, but over the summer, we had a backpacking trip up at Snow Mountain Ranch, uh, Colorado, and my my roommate and I, my buddy, my best friend, said, "Hey, let's quit 
dinking around and let's get involved. And uh, so we locked and loaded in that, that fall of my sophomore year and started getting really serious. And then I just had a experience with the Lord. I'd, I'd been to the altar as a kid and had some spiritual experiences before, but I said, Lord, this is an eternal decision. And I just, I need to make sure you've been in my life in different ways my whole life. But at this point in time, I'm committing my entire life to you. Will you please um, forgive my sins, come into my life, change me. Uh, and as you know, I, I read through the four spiritual laws. I said, take control of the throne of my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And you know what? He answered that prayer. And all of a sudden, my life was about Christ. It was, it's like, much to my parents' chagrin, it wasn't about my studies, you know. <laughs> but we just, my roommate and I, he, he had the same sort of experience. And we, we just went door to door evangelizing in our entire dorm. We had Bible studies that we were, uh, we were in one. We were leading one. We were kind of coaching other kids to be leading them in our dorm. And that's what we did for four years. It was, or, you know, three and we actually graduated in four and a half years. So that last three and a half years was very intense Christian experience for me. And I grew a lot. And at the end of that, I said, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to go on a three-year mission trip to Africa. I didn't end up going to Africa. Um, but I was, when I was raising support for that, I was in a prayer and worship time. And I just felt like the Lord impressed on my heart that this wasn't a three-year gig. Charles Cosby, you're going to serve me full-time the rest of your life. And I was in oh, worship. Wow. I was in tears. I was crying. You know? And I was like, wow, it was just so powerful. I didn't hear an audible voice, Eric, but I, I was sure of that more than anything else in my life that I had to serve him full time. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it was like an impression, like kind of a kind of just a real uh, motivating sensation for you. Yes. I mean, it was I, I just I felt like the hand of the Lord on my heart. And I just, I felt these words, like, you're going to serve me full time. And that's when, you know, I did a three year uh, with Campus Crusade. And then I, I did four years as an associate pastor in Britt, Iowa, but I never had any Bible training. You know, I didn't go to Moody or somewhere. Oh, great yeah. where, and I felt like, you know, a good salesman should know his pots and pans. And if I'm going to be doing this for a lifetime, I really need to learn some good skills in the Bible. So that's what uh, kind of triggered me to go to Trinity then in the year 2000. And that's how I met you. And I started yeah, yeah. working at Hewitt Associates. Right. Oh, good old Hewitt Associates. All right, friends, I'm going to tell you this story. So that's the best job that I never appreciated, right? I didn't know how good I had it until I, it was gone because <laughs> like I, I was 19 or 20 when I got hired there. Like I don't, I don't, oh, wow. I was so young and I, I never had had really any other jobs. I just had junk jobs, right? Like UPS and uh, whatever. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, to be able there, we worked as security guards and I remember letting the donut guys in, in the morning on the AM shift. <laughs> remember that at Deerfield? Yeah. And uh, like, it was just, it was so great. Free food. This was the nineties. So it was a lot of three meals a day. Almost. Oh man. Incredible. And then my wife worked there after like, I don't know, a year we were there. I got her a job in the accounting department. Our grocery bill was like nothing. And then now we got four <laughs> kids. It's the opposite of nothing, but it's uh, it was so great. It was food all the time. And then we had this community of security guards who were seminary and college students. I was one of the few college students. Um, but man, I learned like a lot. 60 of us weren't there. And like yeah. 59 were Something going like to Trinity either at the college <laughs> or the, right. There were a ton. There were a lot of us. And it, it really was a sort of community where we would, 
be able to get to banter around theology or ideas or books or things like that, which was, which was really pretty great. It was. Can't really replicate that on Facebook these days. So it, yeah. it was, it was Very like, special. it was like that. Yeah, it was totally. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So I'm curious. So it sounds like your, your decision to go to Trinity was sort of a discipleship decision. You felt like you needed to know more. I'm, I'm curious about, uh, well, okay. So I guess maybe that's later because you, weren't you in the, were you in the military then? I, f- I feel like you were was actually so i had been in rotc in college so for those 10 years after college while i was in full-time ministry i was actually a reserve officer as a logistics like a i was a platoon leader a lot but also a company commander for a transportation company and a and a quartermaster company and so i was just doing weekend duty you know for about 10 years and it was when i was at trinity i met a chaplain recruiter at the bottom down in the um you know, the dark horse, what, what, what was that? Oh, white yeah. Horse white horse in. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, so he was at a table and he said, hey, why don't you transfer and become a chaplain instead of a line, you know, more of a just a regular officer. And um, I said, I never thought about it, even though my dad was a chaplain. He's like, your dad was a chaplain. Well, then you have to do this, you know. So I ended up switching over to be uh, a military chaplain in the Army Reserves while I was in Trinity. Yeah. Well, that's what I was wondering is if if that was, if you had considered that uh, path as a chaplain because of your dad or not. So you, you were. And that's part of the, you know, I, I told you, I kind of had this antipathy toward church in yeah. Christianity. I think it was because it was just so locked and loaded three times a week, you know, no, no questions asked. And I, I did, never thought I would ever go into ministry. I never thought I would go to seminary. I never thought I would be a chaplain. I just, in fact, if you'd asked me if I wanted to do that, I would say that was maybe the last thing I want to do. I just, for some reason, I just developed this, I don't know, not a, not a dislike, that's almost too hard, but just kind of a take it for granted, you know, mm. the, the yeah. church. Um, that maybe maybe there's other kids that grew up in a Christian church felt the same way, you know, going out of high school, going to college, and then kind of revitalizing while they're at college uh, through a parachurch ministry, perhaps. Right, right. Yeah, well, it happens differently for everybody, which is is kind of interesting. Um, so, what were some of those? It sounds like those were those were important moments. Did you have other important, like, sort of spiritual moments? Or, you know, I know that any moment could be spiritual, right? But, like, because <laughs> uh, so I don't want to, I don't want to like suggest that they aren't. But sometimes we have these encounters with God, or we have these seasons when we know that God is kind of working in us, or He's maturing us, or developing us in some way. And I'm curious about for you, like, did you have some, any seasons like that or times like that moments maybe that, that kind of shaped you? Yes. Um, so when I went, um, when I became the associate pastor at, in Britt, Iowa, at, at the Evangelical Free Church there, and I also had most of my duty was youth pastor and discipleship. So youth pastor probably took 90% of it and then as much discipleship as I could after that. But um Anyway, taking youth, the youth on mission trips and um, being involved in worship down in Mexico, for instance, it really just, um, it was so powerful when you're working all day, sharing God's love with the lost. We were building a home the first year. We built a home. The second year, we built a church. And um, 
you work all day, you're dirty, you're tired, you come back, you get something to eat, but then you just worship God for an hour and, you know, you get some input from the Bible. And it was, it was powerful. It was radical. Some of those kids now have been in full-time mission. Some of those students, you know, went into, Mm. um, became ministers at their church and some of them went overseas to Africa and different things. And, um, one of those students was Matt Rounds, who worked at, he, he decided to go to Trinity oh, and wow. went, worked at, at uh, Hewitt Associates with us. And I know you've, you've kept up yeah. with him the last 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I probably knew that back in the day, but I'd forgotten. So that's, that's a pretty cool connection. That's great. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, um, there's that. Um, I, I remember being at Trinity, Eric, with you. And, you know, we had a great advisory group with John Nyquist and we all really yeah. got to know each other well. And he really, he really put his heart and soul in that, which was appreciative. Um, but being there, I remember in, you know, Dr. Osborne's Greek exegesis mm-hmm. class, and it was almost like I would walk out of there on cloud nine, like I'd heard a sermon because of the way he would kind of exposit the the text and the scriptures. And he's just so pastorly and it was so applicable. And I would leave Greek exegesis classes feeling like I'd been to church. I just, I loved the Lord. I loved what I was learning and just so happy about that. Yeah. Soaking it in. I do remember that. I got, I got into, I took the Greek, cause I took Greek in college at Trinity there. And then when I went to seminary, I had to do the, the Greek test and I hadn't done any Greek in a year and a half. I got the lowest possible grade you could get <laughs> and still pass. And I ended oh, up wow. taking like the night class, you know, that nobody wanted to take. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was blessed. I hadn't had Greek before. Cause like I said, uh, I didn't go to any kind of Bible college. I went to a party school in yeah, Colorado. Yeah. So I had to take the suicide Greek the summer before uh-huh. Dana Harris. And she was yeah. a phenomenal teacher. It's just what I needed. And it was just like intense in my face for six weeks, you know, learn this language. Yeah. You you kind of busted out. That was fun. Um, Very cool. I I felt the same way about Dr. Osmond. He was so good. And they always, uh, they always, you know, it's funny in school, like they can just exposit that stuff like crazy. And then you're like, okay, but that's harder to do. I'm on a paper. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Right. When I have as much time as I need. Uh, yeah, that's good. So you found seminary to be really sort of life-giving. And, and so some, yes. some of us feel like, okay, it's the opposite because it's, it's kind of academicizing. I don't think that's a word, making our faith more academic. Um, but instead you were, you were going the other way. How, tell, tell me about that. I think, I think the big reason for that is because I'd been in ministry for about 10 years since mm. college. Yeah. And I had seen you know, board fights and I'd seen the highs of a church and the lows of a church, you know, where I'd seen just wonderful things happen in a church and mission trips and being involved and being involved with crew and doing some mission work with crew. And, but I'd also seen, you know, the struggles and the conflict. So when we would take a, you know, a church, you know, or what is it that the classic Greg Scharf taught practical theology, you know, when he would be talking about some of the stuff that happens inside a church, I had a grid for that, you know, and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, he's right. And I'm going to, I want to read this book. And I, I was just so interested in everything. So for three years, I was just a sponge. Yeah, I hadn't been in the academic setting for 10 years. Like there was a kid, there was a student um, in our my suicide Greek class. He was 20 years old. He'd been homeschooled. You know, I was, I don't know what right. I was. 28, 30 years old, you know, yeah, and uh, maybe 32. And uh, anyway, so I'm sitting next to this 20 year old who's just, he looked like one of my kids now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, gee whiz, you know, 
and there were guys living in the dorm, you know, they didn't have to worry about a family job, all this stuff. They're just like, Hey, what do you want to do this weekend? What do you want to, I'm like, well, I have to work three 12 hour shifts at Hewitt you know, just to put food on my table. Right. And, and this is another crazy part of it. I mean, God just, Hewitt was part of the blessing. We saw God bless us through those three years, like none mm. other. Um, and I remember my mortgage or yeah, we, we'd actually bought a house in Waukegan and my mortgage was oh, wow. 1600 a month. I think I was making 1800 a month from Hewitt. So we had 200 a month to do, you know, like all the utilities, groceries, cars, oh, you know, tuition, all that. But somehow God just, God just stepped in, you know, I had army reserves and had some other things that were happening and it was just like, wow, God. So I got out of there with not too much debt. I had a little bit of debt, but That's it wasn't good. as bad as I've heard. And it was, it was really an amazing experience. And could, I know I've talked a lot, Eric. Can I share one yeah, other? Please do. Thing? This is about you. When, so, well, when I started working at Hewitt with you, I was at like all night guard, all night shift, and everything. I didn't want to go home between seminary and Hewitt and then tell my kids and my wife, sorry, I got to study, you know, shut the door. So I made a deal with God. I know you're not supposed to make deals with God, but I was like, <laughs> Lord, if you could help me, I'm, I'm going to study as much as I can while on the Hewitt job. <laughs> you know, that was a great part about being a guard, maybe half your shift you could study. Um, I won't study at home. I won't do anything at home so that when I'm home, I'm dad and I, I had four kids and I'm dad and I'm husband. And that worked, brother. I mean, to be honest mm. with you, until we got laid off, I didn't study at home. And we got laid off. I only had a semester left, yeah. Um, which is a story in itself, the getting the laid off part. But um, I was able to, as you know, being a Hewitt guard, you can, I was oh, yeah. able to write papers. I was able to study for classes and I never did any homework at home, which uh, I think in itself is another miracle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it was really such an amazing uh, blessing for all of us who were there. Cause I would do that. This is the thing I remember most. I mean, we, I did that all the time, but I would go remember Thanksgiving, how we had Thanksgiving and the Friday after Thanksgiving off were both yes. holidays and they were paid. Right. And you could pick it. Nobody wanted to work them. So you could get as many shifts as you want almost. And so and I would like work time and a half or something. Yeah. Right? Double time and a half. It was so much. <laughs> and so then I would work like 16 hours that, that, you know, those two days, plus I would pick up as much as they would let me do because other people were not, you know, there. And I would do all of my schoolwork for the rest of the semester it, that week. <laughs> right. I have, if it, there it were sounds true, it rings true books, really papers, does. presentations, everything. I would have it all done. And the last two weeks of the semester would be amazing. Right. <laughs> uh, but no, that's what, that was a real provision. Yeah. It's hard to explain Hewitt to somebody that didn't work I know. there, just how good it was, you know, that they would feed, they catered from the Marriott. I know. We actually had like a gourmet meal for lunch. It was, job. it was astounding. <laughs> it was astounding. Okay. So anyway, I, I love that. Uh, but it sounds like God really used that as a blessing for your family as, as well. Absolutely. Okay. So you said like the, when we got laid off that that was a, that was a thing. What, what like, was there something that happened there that was, well, just, you know, they, they treated us well. They, so there were 60 of us seminary students and they decided to go, you know, not have proprietary security guards. So they would go contract security. We were all proprietary. We were full vested employees right. in the company. They decided they were doing an IPO at the time. So they decided to give us, you know, shares of stock. They gave us kind of a termination bonus. And then we're, some of us were able to apply for unemployment in, in unemployment. And at that, my last six months of school there, I was looking for a church position. So 
That's oh, what wow. I did for my unemployment, just to be have integrity and say, yeah, I'm looking for a job. I really was, you know, I was, I was doing job applications out to churches and stuff. And so only God, we said, Lori and I would say, only God could take the perfect job mm. and then take it from you. And it's still better because I was like, I was still getting paid, you know, yeah. and, but I was able to be home all the time instead of having to work you know, those last six months. So I don't know. We were just, it was hard. I, I, I wouldn't say it was easy. I mean, having so many children and working graveyard shifts and going right, rolling right into classes. Oh yeah. It, it was brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time. I was, uh, it was a Sunday, you know, we had, how we had to like rotate the Sunday AM shift so that we, we, yes. so, cause nobody wanted to do it. Cause we all wanted to go to church. Right. And, uh, so one time I was in the 90 building which sorry, friends, you don't know what this means. It was a small building. It was beautiful, beautiful little place to be. And, uh, and I'm sitting there, uh, and I'm like, okay, I'm good to go. It was like seven 30. I just got an hour. I'm sitting there. I set up with my little boom box, which I think I only got rid of like five years ago. I, sh- I had it way too long. And I was listening to music and next thing I know, Danny Barker is like waking me up. He's shaking me because <laughs> he showed up for his thing and he was a supervisor and that was not, not <laughs> good. But uh, anyway, those, those are good times. Friends, I'm, I'm, I yeah. know that I'm sharing my stories, but it's fun to share them with uh, somebody who gets it. So it's good to good. Thanks for letting it me do that. Job. It is fun. Um, okay. So that, I love how God did that though. So that you, you were able to, um, you know, take care. So did you end up getting a church position? Like that's probably about where our paths diverted a little bit. Right. Yeah. In the summer of 2003, Lori and I decided to move to Minnesota and do a church plant. Um, so we started a church. We were for the first year, we we're just at a mother church. They gave us a hunting license to go and recruit families, you know, and I got to preach at the church a few times and it was a large church. It was a uh, first free in Maplewood, Minnesota, you know, for the next five years, we just had this amazing time with, uh, it was smaller, you know, a smaller group of people. Um, but for five years, I was church planting and growing the church and doing a lot of door-to-door evangelism and discipleship and all the things. I, I hear pastors have 90 most important things that they have to do every <laughs> week, you know, and I felt like that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's got to be hard. Yeah, it, Did- but it was good. It was, it, we lived on a little, we had bought a little hobby farm, like 10 acres with a little farm, an uh-huh. old farmhouse, you know, and so the kids, you know, they did some fun things like they planted an acre of sweet corn and then sold it at a roadside stand and then bought a go-kart with the proceeds. Oh, nice. Summer, stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. it Super was really cool. good. I love that. Uh, okay. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a time when you felt like God was far away or you were mad at God or you were like a tough season like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one more recently was um, about two or three years ago, the army, we, we moved back to, I, I moved four times in five years. Wow. And it's hard. Yeah. Um, because we kind of made a commitment to my youngest son when we moved back to Virginia, back to the house that we own there from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, we told him, well, you're going to be able to graduate. I just thought, you know, I'd moved so many times. I thought the army will keep me here for three years, you know? So we said, you'll be able to continue to go here and graduate. Well, about a year and a half later, they sent me up to New Jersey, Fort Dix, New Jersey. And my wife and I decided to honor that commitment to my son because he was locked in with wrestling and school and friends and everything. And we thought, well, we, though we were never going to do this and we'd heard of other families doing it, but I didn't want to be a geographical bachelor. 
you oh, know, yeah. live apart from my family, even though probably only three and a half, four hours away, but still hard. So yeah. I did that uh, for about a year and a half. And it was during that time. It was just, it was hard. You know, I tell people I didn't get married to live alone. I didn't get married to sleep alone. You know, I, I yeah. got married to be part of a family and have a, a loving uh, people around me and, and ministering to and with. And so there were some times up in New Jersey, you know, you're all alone. And I was just, I remember praying, you know, pouring my heart out to God about some things and just really telling him I needed him to show up. I need to, to see you. I want to feel, because sometimes I don't know about you, if you've done some traveling and sometimes you just feel lost when you're not around those that you love the most, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, that's kind of how I felt a little bit. Um, I just, I felt a little lost. I knew God was there. I never doubted, you know, his presence and his empowerment in my life, but I just, I just, I needed more. I needed him to fill in those gaps where human relationships couldn't Yeah, make sense. How'd that, how'd that resolve or did, did, what did you, what did you, what happened there? Well, the army moved me again. <laughs> like, God wow. used the army. Okay. Yeah. So they ended up stationing me in Honolulu, Hawaii. Oh yeah. And my wife and my youngest son were at a point where they just needed to finish his senior year at that point. And then my son graduated and my wife joined me in the summer of 2020. She, we sold our house, we put all our stuff in storage Mm. and she joined me last summer. So we've been living here together for nine months and it was a real blessing to kind of reconnect the family, but all my kids are out of the home now, but we have a lot of visitors. Yeah, I bet you do. See, and I'm going to be one of them. (laughs) That'd be good. But all right. So, um, well, yeah, that's, thanks for sharing that. That's really, that's interesting how that happens, right? You know, definitely isolation is one of the big, one of the big drivers sometimes. Did that, was there anything you learned about yourself or about about God through that season? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, God has big shoulders and, um, there's a story I would written a book a few years ago about Corey Tim Boone. I partnered with the Corey Tim Boone museum and foundation in the Netherlands. And, um, I, I just, you know, researching her life and knowing those stories. And there was a story where Corey's on a train with her father and she's a young girl and he was just taking her somewhere. And he, his, her father, Casper, was trying to prove a spiritual point to her because uh, she felt like she couldn't do something. And he's like, Corey, why don't you pick up my bag, his work bag, which had all these clock parts and everything. It was very heavy and she couldn't do it. And she said, Corey, I wouldn't ask you to pick up and do something that you just physically can't do. I, as your father, I'm going to carry that for you. And um, there were times during that period, Eric, where I just, I, I, I just prayed to God that he needed to carry my luggage. You know, mm. I, I can't pick up these bags anymore. I just need you to fill in the gap and to meet me here. And, um, he did, he did. I was given joy and peace. Um, and it wasn't from my own human ability. It's not like I have internal wells that can do that. It was really from without, it was from his Holy spirit. Um, and just being revitalized in scripture and in worship and did a lot of trips home at that time too. But uh, God really showed up in a big way and helped me through that. Yeah. I love that. 
so you mentioned that you you've written some other books. We talked earlier. You wrote you've written seven books. Tell how did you get into that? Did you always want to be a writer? Because I I don't uh, I mean I don't remember ever talking to you about that. So like where where did that come from? It's <laughs> uh, a great question. Um, I think it started. I was. Uh, when I was church planting in Minnesota, I actually got deployed as I got mobilized as an army chaplain and went into combat uh, in Iraq and Baghdad right during the surge in 06, mm. 07. And things were tough. But one of my family members had given me this big fat book about the Civil War. It was about a thousand pages. And I thought, if I'm ever going to do this, I mean, how do you eat an elephant, right? right. I thought, I'm going to read 10, 15 pages a night before I go to bed, even though I wouldn't get back to my trailer until like nine or 10 o'clock at night, dog tired with my combat boots still on, you know, but yeah. I was determined to write a letter and then read, you know, 10, 15, 20 pages at night. And I got through this, this massive tome about the civil war. And I was like, this is amazing. People need to hear these stories. This is our history. This is, I wasn't taught that as a kid in high school or in college. And I thought, this is, we have a phenomenal history in the United States and I wish I could share these stories. And so my first work is actually a civil war novel. It's called in danger every hour. And so when I got back from Iraq and we ended up moving to New Jersey, um, together in 2008. And I just thought I've always wanted to do this, but you know, when I was a youth pastor in, in Iowa in the nineties, I would write I was writing little small stories. I wrote a play for the youth group. You know, there was some creative things there, but, and even at Hewitt, I remember when I, all my studies were done and I was caught up, I would do a little creative writing, but I never thought I would write a book. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but you did, like you decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I did. Yeah. Uh, okay. So tell me about, so how that evolved? Cause you don't, you don't just decide, Oh, I'm going to write seven books. So like you must've made a choice at some point, <laughs> I'm going to be a writer. So what, what was that? Yeah. How'd that go down? Well, when you write your first book, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about the publishing industry. You learn a lot about how do you market it? How do you promote all that? And my first book was actually self-published because I'm no name, never written before. Um, but I learned a ton. So my goal was kind of, let me, I really want to be a published author through a traditional publishing company. And, and that dream was realized in 2014. I published a marriage book um, with uh, uh, somebody, a work associate that I had, co-author, Tony Miltenberger. We published a marriage book called Unbreakable with Abington Press. And that was a whole new experience to work with a publisher. Um, and uh, it, it's almost like as I kind of a hobby, you know, as I'm reading, let's say I'm reading World War II history for a couple of years, I'm like, wow, this would make a good book, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I just get this kind of feel inspired to write a story about it, you know, something like that. Uh, at the time, my work associate and I were doing a lot of marriage conferences and with soldiers and our wives were involved and we were traveling around the country and we're like, hey, you know, we had to write a book sometime about, so to be honest, it's kind of like where I'm at in life. I've kind of yeah. transitioned, bridged that into a book at some point. Well, they say write what you know, right? So you're spending a lot of time thinking about this, thinking about marriage or thinking about civil war or whatever. And so then you turn it into a book, you, you, you turn yes. it down. Yes. Well, that. what's your process like? What's your writing process like? Well, I, it takes an enormous amount of concentration for me to write. <laughs> mm. So I, I pretty much have to be alone in the house. Um, 
And so at, at, with my first book, the army was sending me all over the United States to do these conferences and different things. And I don't watch, I didn't watch TV at the time. We didn't have a TV in our home and I didn't watch TV on the road. You know, you check into a motel for three or four nights and I just would bring a backpack full of research books and articles so that I could type my next chapter of my civil war novel. And that's kind of, there, there's actually, some people say, how do you do it? You know, you're so busy doing all this stuff. If we really evaluate our lives and Eric, you know, this just from going to seminary and working a full-time job, yeah, well, there is a lot of space in there that can get frittered away with, you know, at the time, you know, in the nineties, it was with maybe television or sports outside or something. Nowadays it's with your handheld device, right. social media, all that stuff. It could be really a time drain. And I just found there were a lot of hours. Sometimes Lori would go to bed early and the kids were all in bed and it'd be like nine o'clock and I would maybe spend an hour or two writing. Yeah. Um, but just stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Squeezing it in. But that's, that's a personal development decision, right? To just decide that, Hey, this is something I want to do. Yeah. I think the hardest part is to start. I think everybody's got a book mm. in them. I think there's a lot of people that want to write a book or thought they have a great idea for, I've heard so many great ideas for books that people have. The hardest part is, is open up that lat type, writing, you know, your first sentence and just realizing that you're writing for yourself. You know, you don't have to worry about what your English teacher thought in high school right. or your seminary professor <laughs> or what even your family might think of this. It's like, write for yourself, write what you want to write, write, you know, things that, make you joyful, you know? Yeah. So that is so good. Right. For yourself, you know what? And getting started. So I found this too. I, I write for podcast magazine. I'd feature a podcaster in the religion and spirituality section every month. And, um, I've learned, I've, I just have to like do a really lousy first draft, right? Just get it all out there <laughs> and then I can adjust yeah. it. I can fix it. I can go back yeah. and come That's back in a couple part, days right? Part. and then adjust and make like fix it. And then we've got an editor, so I don't have to, like, she makes it way better every time. So yeah, I can rely on that, but I love that. Okay. Well, I think that's so great. I love that you've written. So the, your new book is called Candor. Is this out already? It is. It actually came out yesterday. Okay, so great, great timing on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so Candor, the secret to succeeding at tough conversations. I bet you've had a few of those in your time in the military. <laughs> yeah. The first chapter is on a huge a huge life moment when I'm sitting with this board of directors and uh, I had to bring up some candor and I just about split the organization <laughs> with the candor, even though I was doing it in love, you know, yeah. I felt like at the right time. And, um, but yeah, so the first chapter delves into that. It, it's just kind of a personal story of, just the trauma of speaking up in Canada because not everybody's willing to receive it, even when it's done in a loving way, you know? Right. Well, that's one of the things that what I was thinking about as I was looking through this is like, it's risky, right? It's risky to be, I think the reason that we don't speak with more authenticity, I'll say, um, I've, cause I've really come to, to believe like I'm always honest, but I'm not always transparent. You know what I mean? Like there's a difference, right? right? There's a, yeah. there's, I, yeah, I may not always say exactly what I'm thinking, although far too often I do, <laughs> but, but, uh, but that, that it's hard because it can be, things can be received wrong. Yeah. I think that's, what's so important about the key. So 
just to go into it a little bit, I, I base it off of Ephesians chapter four. It seems like Paul just lays out this amazing outline for how to communicate uh, with other believers in the church and even outside the church, it works good too. But so Ephesians chapter four and verse 15, he says, you know, speak the truth in love. And then mm-hmm. in verse 25, he, he reiterates that speak words that are true and wholesome. And then in verse 29, he says, do this, you know, for the edification of others, you know, speak these good words to build up others at the, at the appropriate time. And so I came up with four keys to candor just through that, that chapter. And that is to speak the unspoken truth with love at the right time for the benefit of other people. And Eric, I think, you know, and, and I just taught a class on candor yesterday to some military leaders and they were asking me about, you know, how does this work and how did you come up with this? And I just said, and what about dealing with difficult people, you know? And I think those four keys are so important because if you really, if you really pause, take a strategic pause and remember, you know, your love for them, your love for the organization, that you're trying to help everybody in the room, then your motives get right. And you may decide, I, I don't need to say anything right now because it's more just me wanting to make an emotional declaration. Like you're a jerk. You shouldn't be saying that, you know, right. It's like, if you're doing it for that person to love them, it really filters what you say. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the key. Obviously love is, is the key. I, I'm really, this is one of my, one of my hot buttons, Charles. So I'm going to bring it up. Uh, I'm going to be candid with you if I may, but, <laughs> uh, but the, is the whole speaking the truth in love thing, right? Like I, I, every time I say something about love on Facebook, I get the truth trolls, right? Who show up and go, <laughs> yeah, but the truth, sometimes the most loving thing you can do for somebody is tell them the truth, which I mean, sometimes that's true, but you got to be motivated by love, right? Not just, you know, how, how would you address that? Yeah, it reminds me. So the the new publisher for Nav Press, his name is David Zimmerman. And when I met with him one time, a few years ago at Glen Erie, he had a button on that said, I am for you. And I said, that's a cool button. I said, I, I like the fact that you wear that. He goes, yeah, but I was at an airport and some guy was poking it and saying, are you for me when I'm doing this, you know, poking <laughs> and some stranger, you know, and anyway, that's what you just said made me think of that. Yeah. Um, there's always going to be that, but I, in the book, and you probably saw it, I have an access, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a diagram where a chart where there, the vertical axis is, candor and the horizontal axis is love. And my theory is that you want to, you want to be full in love and full in candor, and then you can become a trusted companion of somebody, a true friend. Right. Um, If you have high candor and low love, I call it a drill sergeant figure. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just people that speak authority in your life. There's no emotions. There's no love. If you have all love and no candor, I call it a grandmother figure. You know, it's just love. And sometimes we need that. Yeah, And then if it's neither, it's just an acquaintance, you know, people, servers at Starbucks or people you meet in a store. But the goal is to be fully loving and fully truthful. And, you know, humans are always going to err on one side or the other. Jesus was the only one who's perfect mm-hmm. in both grace and truth. So he's the only one that's not wrapped around those two horns of the dilemma between being too truthful or too loving. Right, right. That's true. He he definitely models that. And sometimes he was very candid with people, right? Or he knew how to say something. Like the one that always gets me is the guy who comes up and goes, hey, I've done all the things. You know, what, what should I do? And he goes, well, mm-hmm. keep the commandments. He goes, well, I did all those. And he goes, okay, well then sell everything, right? And then and come back and and let's, let's you know, follow me and I'll, I'll show you. 
And the guy's like, oh, I can't. And Jesus, but I mean, we can, sometimes the sermon is preached about that guy, but I think what's really interesting there is that Jesus knew what that guy needed, right? He knew what the obstacles were to following him and he spoke it into that guy's life, right? Right. It was a, you know, I tell people don't, don't give like your spouse truth fastballs in a public setting. You know, it's like the appropriate (laughs) time is maybe when you're alone, if you want to speak some true things, but yeah. Um, that was like a truth fat, not, not, you know, Jesus, not, not like Jesus throwing a fastball, but it was like, it was just so piercing yeah. focused laser, like you said, right into his heart and life. Yeah. He, cause he, cause he knew, but it was, I mean, I, I don't know, I guess there was a crowd who knows, but yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I think that's really, really great. So is it possible? Cause I think one of the problems right now is that, uh, we're not talking to each other in this country. Right. Like we're, we're, yeah. we're not, we're, we're, we're either talking past each other or we're insisting that we're right and not listening. Like how, how can, how can this help that? A- absolutely. Eric, I wrote, I started working on the book two and a half years ago. I had no idea what was coming. I mean, at the time, I don't know if you remember in 2016 with the, the election we had then it was you know, people were saying, oh, be careful when you go to Thanksgiving, you know, some people, family members aren't wanting to get together. We had no idea. That was just kind of a, yeah, that was right? the junior varsity test for our country. When you look at COVID, the civil rights movement that started last summer, and then the elect, contentious election, and then the Capitol uh, yeah. riot. That, I mean, we're now what I would call in a emotional civil war. And it's people are reluctant to say anything because they know there's cancel culture, there's the woke police. There's all, you know, there's all this stuff that's going on in our society. People, they have opinions, they have passionate feelings. They don't know who to talk to about it. And so I started working on the book and I really think it was a God thing that, Hey, we need to have a book on candor that is kind of, there's been some other books written on candor, but Mm -hmm. not from a Christian perspective. Yeah. Uh, They're all business minded, you know, just pages and pages of about organizational stuff. And I thought, you know, what about as a Christian speaking up, speaking the truth? What about in a, you know, a board meeting in church? Or let's say you're a parent going to a student parent meeting, or you go to a school board meeting, or um, there's got to be like rules for people that are, you know, they would work in the Christian area, but they'd also work in society well. And I I really think the tools in this book and the keys, there's there's an appendix at the 22 strategies for effective candor that I really think could help churches, uh, schools, uh, businesses, not-for-profits, it, you know, anywhere where you have people and you have meetings, the military, yeah. for instance. Right. So. right. I love that. I was going to look that up and see, here we go. Okay. First one, speak to people in private if possible. That's what we said earlier. Right. <laughs> so, yep. and that's right. Like sometimes it just doesn't have to all be out there on Facebook or wherever you're, wherever you're doing it. So I love that. Um, interesting. Well, Charles, I am really fascinated by that. Where do you where do you think you're headed next? Like, what are you what are you working on now? Wow, I have. Um, do you remember D. A. Carson? He always, you yeah. know, and and some of these guys. Um, uh, the, our professors would have so many book projects that they're like, I don't think I have enough sabbaticals coming up that mm. I can, you know, write all the books that I want to. To write, and that's kind of how I feel. I have so many books I want to write, and I don't know if I have a long enough life to do it. So, but I, I have seven book projects right now I want, and some are fiction, some are nonfiction. But 
for nonfiction, uh, one of the things that I felt more impressed is is possibly writing a book about faith um, and um, what are kind of the, you know, we talked a lot in seminary about the rules of faith because mm-hmm. uh, there's, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of young people too. It's like, what's the difference? You and I know what the difference between a Methodist and a Presbyterian and all right. for a lot of people, this next generation, it's like, well, there's a Christian church and there's the Mormons and there, but I, I don't really know too much about the different denominations because a lot of people are in a non-denom church. Right. So why would they ever study the history of the Nazarene or assembly of God or Baptist or, you know, right. Or they're replacing, they're just taking the denomination out of the title, right? Like that's not even part of it anymore. So they may not be a non-denominational, but they act like one. And so it's just not a thing. And I I really do think there's a movement toward um, uh, ecumenicalism, maybe like, I I feel like maybe that's not the right way to put it, but I feel like there is, we are going to get to a, a time where, we, the things we have in common are more important than things with, with, that that we don't, which is interesting. But yeah, I think the the whole faith thing, you know, I tell you what, deconstruction is a big deal right now because I think people don't know what, uh, like, there's a lot of disagreement. And so they're trying to figure that out. Right. And as society, you know, and politics, as, as it kind of it is more... Um, hurting Christians into more and more of a corner, you know, with some things. Yeah. Um, it's good to know what are the ties that bind? What are the, the essentials? Let's right. keep the essentials essential. Let's keep the non-essentials non-essential, but we got, we got to, you know, maybe stand against some of these things because where's our society. We've seen a lot of changes the last 20 years. What, what's going to happen 20 years from now for us with, you know, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, those kind of things. Yeah. And how do we band together to do it? That'd be interesting. Okay. Well, I'll be looking for that, Charles. So when you get, get, let me know when it's out, we'll, we'll talk again. And uh, I love that. So uh, friends, the book again is called Candor, The Secret to Succeeding at Tough Conversations by my friend, Charles Kazi. I'm so excited to be able to just share that with you and share, share him with you. Um, Charles, is there anything you want to leave us with? I want to compliment you as a, <laughs> as a great interviewer that has covered a lot of the great points and uh i'm just i'm humbled and honored to be on your show i think you have a great podcast and everything i've read and seen and listened to i i'm amazed at what god's done in your life eric um over the last 20 years and so it's a thrill and a joy for me to be here and and share a little bit about our my life here but um yeah i would just i would just like to say you know one of one of my life verses is uh hosea 6 3 and that is, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord is going forth as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain that waters the earth. And um, it's that, that thought, let's press on. We have a lot of stuff going on in our society, maybe in our family, in our workplace, but let's press on. Yeah, friends, maybe it's been a little while since you've read a minor prophet like Hosea. This is why you should read them. There, there's a lot of beauty in there. It's really good. You can get Candor at any place you get books, right? But it's also causybooks.com if you want to connect with Charles and uh, and get him get him on your show or or just connect and, and say hello and that you heard him here. Charles, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. It was a great time. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>